Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange... The bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Hang on a second, I got a, a dog hair in my mouth. <laughs> What's new? I had a dog hair in my ear. Yeah. <laughs> that was so weird, it felt like I had like water in my ear and I got a Q-tip and it was a dog hair that got in my ear. <laughs> That's upsetting. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I wanted to ask you, um, what did you spend all that money on that I, I saw on our credit card account? I, it doesn't say where you spent it. I'm just curious. Not that you can't. I mean, you know, your money, my money, it's our money. But um, what did you spend all that money on? <laughs> I don't know. There was a lot of preamble there to to let me know that I was allowed to spend our money. Uh-huh. Um, and I feel like that wasn't necessary. Well, I'm not accusing you of anything. I'm just curious what you spent that money well, on. Well, I did. I showed you a couple of things the other day. And you may remember our conversation about the um, the website where I found the uh, Asian kitchen gadgets. <laughs> so <laughs> so you, you spent... You spent that much money on Asian kitchen gadgets. Well, here's the thing is if you show me a rice spoon that's in the shape of a rabbit, I'm not going to say no to that. (laughs) So you got the rabbit rice spoon. That's right. Okay. Yes. I also got some fruit picks in the shapes of various animals, Uh uh, which is nice. And then I got a... Um, water tumbler that has like nonsense English on it, which like, I like love. What? What's it um, say? It says, uh, "Happy girls live well, large capacity." Hmm. So pretty excited about that. Right. Yeah, because I am in fact large capacity, and <laughs> I do live well because I'm happy. So. Um, well, well, I hope you got expedited shipping because <laughs> I'm excited now. Yeah. Also excited about this. You know how I love gangsters. Yep, almost uh-huh. as much as you love war. Do they have gangster uh, kitchen utensil websites? Because I'd be really into a Bugs Moran juicer. <laughs> yeah, or a bottle opener that says, yeah, see, every time you <laughs> use it. <laughs> well, here in the U.S., we all know a great deal about Al Capone. Right, tax evasion, syphilis. Right. It's true that he's well known internationally, but for those of you 
who listen to the Box of Oddities from somewhere else in the world. Maybe you're not as familiar with him as we are here in the U.S. And those of you who are, these are some things you probably, well, perhaps you don't know. Alphonse Gabriel Capone was born in 1899 and died in 1947. He was known by his nickname Scarface and was an American gangster and businessman who became excessively successful and wealthy, particularly during the Prohibition era in the 20s, the Jazz Age. He was the boss of the Chicago outfit, and for seven years, he was the major crime boss of that territory. When he finally went to prison, his reign ended. He was only 33 years old. Wow. In those last years of his life, he claimed that he was haunted by the ghost of one of his victims. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. A man named Jimmy. Jimmy the ghost. Jimmy the Um, ghost. I guess that would explain a lot of things. Maybe the fear of Jimmy the ghost aged him because at 33, I mean, he looked in his 50s. Easily. And it's a high stress job. I suppose that's true. Dealing in racketeering. (laughs) What with the the prostitution and the gambling and the prohibition era whiskey. Capone exploded onto the organized crime scene at a very early age. In fact, at the height of his crime boss powers, he was 26. He had connections with law enforcement as well as politicians. Uh, He was well known for buying influence through either bribes or physical intimidation. Capone was extremely careful and strategic in crafting his public image Much like Wendy and Marty in Ozark. (laughs) Yep. Which is interesting that you brought up prohibition, um, because that's another example of uh, us in the States making laws that uh, do the exact opposite of what (laughs) what we intend for them to do. Yeah. Prohibition, it made the alcohol industry explode. It It created a huge crime problem. The war on drugs, Wendy and Marty. Yeah. uh, (laughs) Just terrible, terrible, unsuccessful venture. Capone always wore the best and most expensive suits. He was extremely dapper. He drove the fanciest cars. He donated large sums of money to charities. And even uh, when the Depression hit in 1929, he set up soup kitchens around Chicago. So he was really thought of more as a Robin Hood-like character. Sure. And that was by design. Oh, yeah, especially in that kind of like mobby way. Like Mm. you want to be able to do things for people and create sometimes protection, sometimes well-being in the neighborhood. Right. That way they'll support you and they won't rat on you. The flip side of the coin was that he was ruthlessly violent. Mm. By 1929, Capone virtually controlled the entire illegal liquor trade in the uh, Chicago region. But that's not to say that he didn't have competition. He did. A group known as the Northside Gang was trying to carve out a piece of Capone's bootlegging uh, empire. This gang was run by Bugs Moran. And it didn't take long before Capone decided that Bugs was too big of a threat and had to be eliminated. Oh. This led to what has become known as the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. On the morning of February 14th, 1929, men working for Capone, dressed as police officers, raided the Northside gang. 
The Northside gang, assuming that they were in fact police officers, complied with the demands. Capone's men told them, it was seven guys, to line up against the wall. It's kind of like when our old neighbor dressed up as a sheriff and stole marijuana from a pot grower. (laughs) This was more well thought out, though, because they didn't just have police badges with the word police written in Sharpie, which this guy did. Our former neighbor, he he went to like the military surplus store and he bought something that looked like kind of like a uniform. And then he wrote sheriff in marker on his pocket and, and tried to confiscate some legal uh, marijuana farms product didn't work out so as i said Northside gang thought that uh, these were in fact police officers the uh, capone gang dressed as police officers told them to line up facing the wall then capone's gang sprayed them with machine gun fire killing them by shooting them in the back Bugs Moran was not in attendance for this gathering. He escaped. He was tipped off at the last minute, and he didn't show up, so he was spared. Now, this is the point where public opinion of Capone began to turn. Pictures of the Valentine's Day Massacre were widely circulated in the press. It was extremely bloody. Uh, You can see them online. Just Plus, shooting them in the back, it's just cowardly. It's even against mob protocol in some cases. So the public was shocked. And Capone's political allies decided that there was no recourse, but they had to prosecute him. But the problem was they couldn't pin it on Capone because, you know, he's a very careful, strategic guy. He was out of town when this happened. So they had to find another way to arrest him. In May of that year, just a few months after the massacre, Capone was arrested for carrying a gun while he was on a business trip in Philadelphia. And he was sentenced to a prison term in the Eastern State Penitentiary. Maybe he just forgot it was in there. You're very sympathetic to people who get caught with weapons at uh, legal checkpoints. I get it. It's (laughs) happened to you endlessly. Speaking of which, I'm getting a new knife and I'm so excited about this. But we can talk about it later. So even though he was in custody, he was still extremely well connected. And he was given extremely good uh, treatment in the prison. This was not one of those country club prisons. This was uh, a place where prisoners normally were confined in empty concrete cells. They didn't even have a real bed, just a simple slab of concrete to sleep on. But Capone's cell, on the other hand, was lavishly decorated with oil paintings, fine furniture. He even had a radio in there. And we saw a, a recreation of his cell at the, what was it, the Crime Museum in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee? Yeah, the East Alcatraz Museum. Yeah, it's pretty wild. But even though he had these advantages, Capone began to unravel when he was in prison. Soon after his incarceration, he went from a ruthless crime boss to becoming a weeping, terrified shell of the man that he once was. (laughs) And his behavior started to become very odd. Guards and other inmates reported that Capone could be heard night after night. Blood-curdling screams would come from Capone's cell. And over and over again, he shouted for Jimmy to leave him alone. Aha, Jimmy the Ghost. Jimmy the Ghost. Which sounds like a mob moniker. It does. Now, we don't know for sure who Jimmy was, but speculation was that it was one of Capone's victims come back from the dead to torment him. And interestingly, one of the seven guys from the St. Valentine's Day Massacre was named 
Jimmy Clark. Jimmy Clark was Bugs Moran's brother-in-law and died that bloody February 14th with bullets in his back that came from the guns of Capone's men. Can I just pause for a second? Yeah. And note how lyrically that was written. Well done, sir. Thank you very much. Now, you mentioned he had syphilis, and it's important to point out at this stage of the story that Capone was suffering some pretty serious effects of syphilis, which was untreated. When he was merely 20 years old, he worked as a bouncer at a brothel, and during this time, he contracted syphilis and never sought treatment for it. Hence, the disease advanced to neurosyphilis, and that led to dementia. His mental stability continued to deteriorate pretty quickly from this point forward. But even though that was the case, Capone continued to be tormented by this Jimmy consistently throughout his mental decline for years to come. And it wasn't just at the Eastern State Pen. His haunting followed him after he left and was sent to serve another 11 years at the Atlanta U.S. Penitentiary and ultimately Alcatraz for his tax evasion. That's what they ended up catching him tax evasion, not murder and extortion and racketeering. Couldn't prove that. Throughout those years that he was in prison, a total of about 14 years, it was reported by inmates and guards that Capone spent most of his nights screaming for Jimmy to leave him alone. Now, do we think that Jimmy was a side effect of the syphilis? Clearly, that's that's probably what it was. But even as his mental state continued to deteriorate and he forgot who he was and what people were, you know, one thing that remained constant was this. Jimmy was tormenting him at night. And even though his screams at Jimmy were heard mostly at night, inmates said they could see him during the day quietly bargaining with someone or something that could not be seen by the naked eye. Oftentimes, he would just sit staring off into the distance, muttering to himself, and the only discernible word was Jimmy. Oof. In 1939, Capone was released, mostly due to his deteriorating health, but he still didn't go home. After they released him, they put him in a mental hospital in Baltimore. So 13 years or so in prison, and then three more years confined in a mental institution, Capone continued to be terrorized at night by an unseen person named Jimmy. His health continued to deteriorate. By 1946, examinations by his physician, as well as a psychiatrist from that Baltimore hospital, indeed determined that Capone had the mental capacity of about a 12-year-old child. Now, I have a question, because I don't, I mean, don't get me wrong. Mm. I'm very grateful that I don't know that much about syphilis, but I don't. Mm. And so, like, once it gets to neurosyphilis, is that untreatable? Yeah, I think okay. at that point you can't. There's not much you can do. In fact, uh, syphilis can manifest in some pretty horrific ways, not just neurosyphilis, but it can actually eat the bones. And we've had, well, we saw at the uh, Mütter Museum. Mm. Uh, wax replicas of heads that uh, had been had suffered from various symptoms of syphilis and there would be like their nose and the front of their face would just be eaten away yeah it's pretty grisly don't get syphilis yeah try not to do that so when he was released from the mental hospital due to his medical condition at that point uh, they knew he was probably going to check out pretty soon he spent the remainder of his life at his palm beach residence near Miami in Florida. And on January 25th, 1947,
Capone was again screaming for Jimmy to leave him alone when he died of a cardiac arrest. Wow. He was buried at Mount Carmel Cemetery in Hillside, Illinois. They had to, they they buried him at a different cemetery at first, I guess, and uh, his tomb was vandalized. And so a few months after that, they moved him to Mount Carmel Cemetery. Interesting. His tombstone simply reads Alphonse Capone. 1899 to 1947, my Jesus mercy. And it may be that now Al Capone is the restless spirit roaming the earthly plane. His ghost has been reportedly sighted not only at locations he famously frequented in Chicago, but also Alcatraz prison. There have been alleged sightings of Scarface at the Green Mill Cocktail Lounge in Chicago. Uh Uh-huh. That was founded in 1908, and in Capone's time, it was a speakeasy and a place with secret tunnels that served as easy access for the likes of Capone. In fact, it was partially owned by Capone's associate, Machine Gun Kelly. Capone's home at 7244 South Prairie Avenue in Chicago is another site of an alleged Capone ghost encounter. And that home in Chicago was on the market um, in 2016 for like $179,000. I would think that it was Capone's house. It would have been much more lavish than it was and certainly more expensive. But there you go. Capone's Miami home, the home that he would ultimately die in, he bought in 1928. And uh, that has had reported sightings of Capone's ghost. Can we go there? I would love to. Okay. The Valentine's Day Massacre Wall is yet another site. That's a tourist attraction. It seems as though Capone is wandering about in his afterlife restlessly. No word on whether he has ever made amends with Jimmy. Yeah. But uh, what a tragic end to a life that brought a lot of tragedy to a lot of people. My information came from Wikipedia, Ancient Origins, Smithsonian Magazine, and The Travel Channel. Wow. And you're right about Capone. Most of the pictures that you see of him in his heyday in the mid-20s when he was running all that racketeering in uh, in Chicago, he looked like he was in, the, in his 50s, but he was 25, 26 years old. It's incredible. Yeah, it's, it's weird. But, you know, I guess being haunted will age you. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life... Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's 
A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A frames.com and use code oddities at checkout. And you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? <sighs> Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. And now, that thing in the middle. Honey hunters in Mozambique use special calls to recruit the services of birds known as honey guides. These birds will lead humans to bees nests, and in return, they get the leftover beeswax. Everybody wins, except the bees. Got an email from Olivia at curator at the box of oddities.com. What topic shall we discuss? She wrote dream boo effect. Howdy, friends. I've never yet to meet freak dogs and pod persons extraordinaire. <laughs> know that you are adored and that your names have been benighted and beatified in our household as we refer to you as Saint Cat and Sir Jethro. <laughs> the other night, a few weeks ago, I had a boo effect happen in a dream and then dream listened to an entire dream segment of the Box of Oddities podcast. Wow. Here it goes. In the dream, I'm in a house somewhere that has dirt floors and not much else. There is, however, a small radio on a shelf that's playing your podcast. I'm sweeping the dirt floor when my daughter walks into the room and tells me she has to do a school project on Venezuela. At the same moment, almost simultaneously, Dreamcat announces she's doing a segment on Venezuela. My daughter and I both look at each other and then at the radio and then laugh at how weird that was. We continue listening to the episode and Dreamcat and Dream Jethro bring on a surprise guest host. It's Nicole Kidman. <laughs> wow! <laughs> Dream JG is a bit smitten and giddy and begins telling strange stories about himself. <laughs> 
For instance, he told an anecdote about how in the past he had been in the habit of not only referring to himself in the third person, Jethro never does that, by the way, but had gone so far as to refer to different parts of his body with various conditions that he would contract as they were separate beings. For example, Jethro told Nicole Kidman, quote, I had an old arm injury. I used to call it old blue. <laughs> this is your way of dream flirting with Nicole Kidman. I guess. I love it. I have nothing to worry about. Dream Jethro related that if someone would ask him to help them move something, he would just grab his arm, shake his head sadly, and lament that he wished he could. But old blue was acting up. <laughs> I woke up laughing. Uh, P.S. St. Cat and Sir Jethro, you make me laugh and keep me company even when I'm asleep. Keep flying that freak flag for us dream freaks. Olivia. That was delightful. Loved that. Send us your dreams. We want to hear you about, about your weird dreams, whether it's about Boo or not. We just want to tell us your weird dreams. I had a weird dream last night that our old co-worker, uh, Johnny... Rockstar. Rockstar Johnny. Johnny Rockstar and I went to uh, this place where we were hanging out with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember what we were doing, but we were chilling with them. And we both knew, like, and we were sending each other, like, you know, eye contact messages mm -hmm. because we were so cool. Ah. And we were both like, can you believe how cool we are? Because we got to hang with the turtles. So your dreams are far more detailed than mine. I dreamed last night that I ate a plate of lasagna with Sam Elliott. Oh, that would be pretty rad, too. And he, he looked up at me and he had like spaghetti sauce or, you know, pasta sauce. On in his, his stash. In his stash. Yeah. And he's like, this is good, isn't it? That's not a very good Sam Elliott impersonation, but you get the idea. Yeah. <laughs> Dream Sam loves his pasta. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Did you know technology allows us to watch you through your device as you listen to us? Ha ha, made you look. This is The Box of Oddities. Okay, in Canada... 
you'll find Nahani National Park Reserve. It encompasses 30,000 square kilometers. It's a designated UNESCO World Heritage Site. It contains deep canyons and huge waterfalls. It's kind of like uh, Northern Canada's Grand Canyon, if you will. Huge tracts of land. Huge tracts of land, um, as well as a unique limestone cave system. It's home to animals of the boreal forest, like wolves, grizzly bears, and caribou. And as soon as I saw a boreal forest, I was instantly transported back to my zoo tycoon days. (laughs) And I desperately want to play zoo tycoon, but I can't figure out how. Anyway, the South Nahani, which is a river falls almost twice the height of Niagara, Uh, Its gorges are 1,500 feet deep. It is a national treasure that's been home to the Diné peoples for thousands of years. The Nahani Valley is such a sacred place that there are parts that are actually closed off to the general public. It's largely unexplored and uncharted and has a somewhat unsettling popular nickname, Headless Valley. Yeah, that is unsettling. Any geographical area named after a disfigurement I'm against. First of all, it's it's just not good for the local economy. It's hard to get over those optics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Headless Valley, it's an appropriate nickname because of all the beheadings. Even less of an appeal as far as tourism goes. Right. So the park can only be accessed by boat or float plane by travelers seeking to get to the rapids of the Nahani River or mountain the Cirque of the Unclimbables, which is a cluster of peaks and walls in the Mackenzie Mountains natural region. It's near Glacier Lake, and these remote towering cliffs were carved during the last ice age. They're an amazing feat of nature, and it does attract those who love a challenge and those who are intrigued by the region's dark legends. According to Neil Hartling in his book Nahani, River of Gold, River of Dreams, when British writer and explorer Raymond Patterson set out to the Nahani region from Fort Smith in 1927, he received an ominous piece of advice. Men vanish in that country, and down the river they say it's damned good country to keep clear of. Again, not something on a tourist brochure that would really... uh highlight the area's appeal. Now, there are several tales of this mysterious land for a period in the early 1900s. It was reported that the Nahani was a lushly tropical climate fed by a network of hot springs supported by a growth of rare and exotic species. Uh, They said that mountain men lived there and prehistoric animals roamed through the tropical foliage, guarding a fabulously rich lost gold mine. Wait, wait. And the thermometer never hits freezing. In Canada. In Canada. Okay. So Dr. Charles Camsell, the deputy minister of mines, explored the valley. Uh, He did discover several hot springs and expressed to the public, I should say the very disappointed public, that the hot springs were the extent of the tropical vibe Mm. in that northern Canadian region. The springs had no effect whatsoever on the climate and tropical conditions do not exist at any time, which is a super bummer. Yeah, that would have been really cool. Yeah. And and because it was one of the nicer legends about this area. So Nahani National Park was a popular route to the Klondike Gold Rush. 
And there is a legend regarding the so-called McHenry Mine, which is supposed to be located somewhere uh, between the headwaters of the Ross and the Nahani Rivers. Prospectors have searched for this alleged gold mine for years without success. So Meti prospectors Frank and Willie McLeod were part of this gold rush. In 1905, Willie McLeod came down from the Nahani with an Eno's fruit salt bottle chock full of coarse gold nuggets. Hmm. So the brothers, encouraged by this find, headed back in. Willie McCoy? McLeod. McLeod. Willie McLeod. That sounds like a Sam Elliott character. It sure does. In the movie, Sam Elliott should play Willie. I agree. And he'll just be obsessed with finding gold and lasagna. Yeah. After not hearing from them for some time, their other brother, Charlie, feared the worst and had put together a search party to look for the brothers, Willie and Frank. Unfortunately, in 1906, the gold mining brothers were found decapitated near the river. Oh, my. According to legend, their headless bodies were discovered tied to trees with a note saying that the McLeods had found gold. That's weird. It's just creepy. Not long after that gruesome discovery, Martin Jorgensen, a Swiss prospector, found a similar fate. Most of his skeletal remains were found next to his burned-out cabin, his loaded gun still next to him, his head not so much. Mm. All right, I'm, I'm sensing a pattern here. In 1945, a miner named Ernest Savard from Ontario also went into the Nahani Valley, and his headless body was found in his sleeping bag. The death of Phil Powers, whose charred bones were found in the ashes of the cabin he was staying in in 1931, is hotly debated. The RCMP says a faulty stovepipe allegedly caught the cabin roof on fire, burning down the building and cremating Powers. But locals claim that that makes no sense, as Powers was an experienced prospector and was unlikely to have made such a mistake. Plus, the fire that destroyed Powers' cabin was so intensely hot that it left only the bottom log of the cabin and very little of Powers. And if the stovepipe at the top of the building had started the fire, the roof would have collapsed first, right. likely extinguishing the fire. Oh. Moreover, Powers' uh, items were untouched except for cans of gasoline that he needed for his power boat, which were mysteriously emptied. So something sinister is afoot. Yes. Sinisteriness is amok. Now, some people just go in and don't come back. Bill Epier and his partner Joe Mulholland disappeared in the Nahani River in 1936. No word on what happened, but another partner of Mulholland's spent years searching for them without success or any sign. All he found was their burned cabin. Angus Hall, who was a prospector who went to state claims near Flat River in 1928, uh, he had a party of other prospectors with him. He became impatient with how slowly they were moving, and so he tootled ahead without them, never seen again. Mm. So you can see, uh, as you said, there is a pattern of disappearances, 
of both whole people and just heads. Very mysterious. But long before the gold rush brought outsiders to the area and gave it names to pay homage to these legends, like Dead Man Valley, Headless Creek, Headless Range, Funeral Range, all really nice sounding places, Mm -hmm. uh, the people of the land lived with sort of a fearful respect of the space. They believed that the valley was an evil area pervaded by bad medicine, a malevolent supernatural presence which hung over the place. It's said that in ancient times, the Nahani Valley was inhabited by a ferocious nomadic tribe known as the Naha. According to Mysteries of Canada, after suffering a number of devastating attacks and thefts from the Naha, a party of Dene people traveled to the Nahani country with the intent of pillaging a Naha camp. When the Dene came to the camp with their weapons in hand, ready to fight, The Diné discovered that their enemies were nowhere to be found. It was as if they had vanished into thin air, and the Naha were never seen again. That is weird. That is really, really weird. Now, there are those that attribute the disappearance of the Naha to some sort of plague, but then there would be bodies. Sure. And... And Yeah. And as far as I know, there are no plagues that just eat a person's head. Right. But I mean, the Naha's heads weren't missing. Just all of them. Oh, okay. I'm confused. There's so much destruction and death here in this story. There are those that believe that the Nahani Valley is home to an enormous, solitary, wolf-like creature, very reminiscent of a monster of Inuit myth called the Wihala. It's an ancient, carnivorous, bone-crushing mammal, which is referred to uh, locally as the bear dog. Yeah, it's interesting because going back to Skinwalker Ranch, that's one of the weird anomalies or paranormal phenomena that takes place there and has for years. A giant wolf-like creature Mm. will appear and either kill livestock or just threaten human beings. And uh, one of the very first incidents of that the guy who owned the ranch at the time shot this creature point blank just and it just kind of pissed the wolf off and he left but uh he didn't appear to be hurt too too severely now is that based off of an extinct animal that used to live in the region or shape-shifting skinwalkers okay you know different native american native american legend but similar in the sense that it was it's some sort of giant wolf-like creature right in this instance this animal was supposed to have gone extinct about eight million years ago so not so much a supernatural creature just a unnatural (laughs) creature right gotcha okay um and there are those locally that see the disappearances and deaths maybe not as a result of a bear dog or a plague or anything specific, but just this affirmation that the Nahani Valley is simply cursed. I can get on board with that. It seems to be the case. Yeah. yeah. Again, a real shitty tourist attraction. For real. Big thanks to Patricia Bowden, who suggested this topic. I got most of my information from Outdoor Journal, themcleans.com, Abenaki Extreme, Eat, Drink, Travel, and hauntedplaces.org. That's really, really strange. Let's ask our friend William Shatner what he thinks. That is really mysterious. See, he even even the Shat agrees with us on right. that one. Well, yeah. yeah. 
Dog update. They are sharing a dog bed right at our feet, mm-hmm. and it's the cutest thing. They're all cuddled up together. It's and a tiny little dog bed, and somehow they've managed to squeeze both of their fat asses into it. I want to scream. It's so cute. <laughs> As always, thanks for hanging out with us, you guys. We'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend, the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.